Hello, and welcome to Through the Human Geography Lens, a podcast brought to you by the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group, or the WWHGD. I'm Terry Ryan. And I'm Gwyneth Holtz. And today we are here with our guest, Laura Klein, a geographer from the U.S. Department of State. Laura, it's great to have you on the show. We're thrilled to uh, have you in the studio today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, as you mentioned, I've had the opportunity to work with WWHGD for a while now, and it's fun to get to chat uh, more with you ladies here. Yeah, wonderful. I I was thinking this morning, knowing that we were going to see you today, gosh, we have reached out to you so many times to leverage your expertise on who's doing what throughout the human geography community as you've helped shape so many of our um, WWHD agendas through the years. So. Um, we're, we're very excited to hear what you have for us today. So um, could you walk our listeners through uh, what your role is at Department of State, how long you've been there, and, and what you're working on these days? Sure, I'd be happy to. So as she mentioned, I'm a geographer at the U.S. Department of State. I'm within the Humanitarian Information Unit, which is under the Office of the Geographer and Global Issues within the department. So I get to wear a couple of hats as a geographer. I get to work with a number of outreach programs and direct a number of our participatory mapping programs. We've worked in um, over 25 cities and 21 countries around the world. Since 2015, we had our Secondary Cities or Two Seed initiative where we got to work uh, with local partnerships around participatory mapping. We also got to pivot a little bit during the pandemic and work on what we called our Cities COVID Mitigation Mapping, C2M2 program where we did the same local participatory mapping, but we had to do it in a hybrid format, of course, since we were here in the States and working with our partners around the world. And then we also have our MapGive initiative, which is a program, our flagship program, kind of the umbrella that we have for a lot of our outreach and our participatory mapping activities. MapGive also hosts a number of remote mapping activities, so mapathons or mapping parties that we have, where we get to work and focus on bringing volunteer mappers together to map different parts of the world in support of humanitarian and development activities. So that's one aspect of what I get to do as a geographer. The other aspect is since I'm in the humanitarian information unit, I also get to analyze humanitarian issues. I look at urbanization issues around the world, as well as looking at some of the humanitarian issues that are taking place in Africa right now. We, I get to work with a number of my so talented team members as we pull data and analysis together to create information graphics, infographics, that combine a map, charts, graphs, some even text into it, into a one-page look and a very concise description of what's going on in a humanitarian situation around the world so that our policymakers can better understand, as well as this is something we can share broadly on our website, hiu.state.gov, so that other partners and others in the humanitarian community and around the world can see what's going on. Well, you do wear a lot of hats. And I was just going to ask you, where do we find these infographics? Because I know I love a good infographic. I know our listeners do too. So you said it's on hiu.gov? Yeah, hiu.state.gov. And then if you want to find out about MapGive and our mapping activities or join us for a mapathon, they're totally open to the public. And we've been doing them virtually during the pandemic, which has been one benefit of this kind of transition for us. Our website is mapgive.state.gov. Awesome. Well, that's pretty easy to remember. That's awesome. So you've been involved in so many interesting things over the last couple years. 
Can you describe a little bit about your career path that got you there? Sure. So when I started out, I was a girl growing up in Iowa. I got to travel with my parents um, a few different places. And I just realized that I, when I wanted to do something with my career, I wanted to do something international. So I had the opportunity to join or to attend George Washington University as an undergrad. I started out in their international affairs program, and I had to take one geography class my sophomore year. That was it. I knew that was it, what I wanted to do. So I had the opportunity to add geography as a major. One of my professors convinced me to stick around and get my master's there. And so through my advisor, Dr. Ivan Chung, and another professor in our department, Dr. Marie Price, I had a wonderful opportunity to be kind of brought in to the geography profession. I and my other grad student colleagues there, we were brought to some of the AAG, the professional organization, American Association of Geographers. We were encouraged to present our posters, to engage with the other academics. And I really felt like I was able to become part of the profession. In doing that, they also encouraged us to reach out to other geography departments around the area here in Washington, D.C. I was happened to be attending a career fair and handed a resume over to a government organization I'd never heard of. And sure enough, I had the opportunity to join the DOD and be an imagery analyst with them for a number of years. I started there and had an opportunity to try a number of different things. And then about eight years ago, I had the opportunity to come over here to the State Department. I worked at the State Department in the Humanitarian Information Unit and realized that this was another thing that I wanted to do. My whole direction in life is that I feel like I want to help people. And I think that ge geographic tools and processes are a way in which I can help kind of maximize the benefit and the, the opportunities to help others. So I've enjoyed what I've done so far, and there's always something more to look forward to. Well, it seems like with your interest in international relations, I know you likely have been traveling for or maybe before COVID um, and to doing some field work. Where have some of your favorite locations been and what have you done there? Yeah, so it's been a great opportunity to travel with the Humanitarian Information Unit. As I said, I get to focus on Africa. So with our secondary cities, our 2C program, I've gotten to travel to Accra, Ghana and work with a number of our participatory mapping partners there, our 2C partners. Um, we also have had opportunities to work with local communities, and uh, they've escorted us on field trips to help us kind of understand the situation, the needs for mapping in their communities, whether that's an informal settlement or mapping human geography and other elements to better support emergency preparedness, resilience, and sustainability in their communities. I love the story about you talking about growing up in Iowa and then developing you know, the passion that kind of led your career. And you never really know where that starts. I, I have a, a son who's in high school, and he just recently started talking to me about this app he's using called Worldle, not Wordle, Worldle. And he shows, he gets like silhouettes of countries, and he has to guess. And, and it tells you like proximity, on how close, you know, your guess is to where the, the place actually is on the map. And it's been exciting to see that as a parent, like, is this where the interest is going to go towards a career in geography? So it's, it's fun to watch. So thank you for taking us through your career journey. You've been a lot, you've been to a lot of places and you've done a lot of, of really exciting things. What's been your favorite part? 
And that might be a, a multi-part answer. We understand that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll start pretty generally because as a geographer, I get to do such a wide variety of things. And I love the challenge that keeps coming up in the, these different activities. As I said, I want to help people through geography and geographic tools and kind of looking at that intersection of humans and the environment and really kind of the crossroads of geography, as I call it. So I've gotten to create a career across many roles, um, looking at disaster response, examining environmental resources and urban areas, and almost the past 10 years now where I've gotten to work with international partners. And that's just been such a tremendous and eye-opening experience because we get to learn from each other and share different processes and techniques. What works in one place may or may not work in another or may need some adaptation to work in another situation, but it's been such a great opportunity. And so it's just always a new challenge, a new activity to work on from day to day. So you were also talking about participatory mapping with international partners and with local partners. Can you talk about why that is so important? Sure. So the idea for participatory mapping came out of this remote mapping that we did. We started MapGive back in 2014. And a lot of the reason that MapGive started was because we saw the value of remote mapping for disaster response when 2010, the large earthquake hit Haiti. There were groups of participatory mappers, some of whom were expats from Haiti that knew the area very well. So the participatory or the remote mappers could map roads and streets. But if you knew the location very well, the expats could add in the local name for the road. They could add in this building is used for a hospital or a school and a lot more of that rich local context. In 2015, we realized we could take this participatory mapping method and work through our U.S. embassies and our partners there, the ESTH, or Environment, Science, Technology, and Health Officers there, to build these partnerships and help map human geography for communities, secondary cities, so not a capital city, but a provincial capital perhaps, or a regional economic hub. And we could work with them to develop this capacity for mapping human geography, where you're capturing this local context that you really can't capture any other way. And to create open data with this rich attribution so that these communities could help solve some of the emergency preparedness, resilience, or sustainability issues that they've had in their communities. So you can only do this with partnerships and we've had such a tremendous experience building these partnerships over seven years now. And we continue to engage with our partners through our three regional hubs that we have. It's called our Participatory Mapping Partnerships Network, PMP Network. And so we're working with our existing hub partners in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. And we've just held our Mapathon with our Africa hub partner. We look forward to this summer, hopefully hosting our Mapathon with our Asia partner, and in the fall, hosting our Mapathon with our Latin American partner. So we invite all of your listeners to join us and find out more at our mapgive.state.gov website. Absolutely. Well, I don't know that we've had a guest on the show that's had as many acronyms as you, Laura, but you are doing such a great job (laughs) telling our listeners what all the acronyms are. And I appreciate it because I'm certainly learning a lot myself today. (laughs) The problem with the U.S. government and all of our acronyms. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So if somebody wanted to get involved with, you know, a map give exercise, how easy or how how much experience would they need to be able to to join the team um, on a voluntary basis and and be an asset? Well, you wouldn't need any experience at all. Just find us and join us for one of our activities. This is an opportunity where we are provided training for new mappers 
And last Mapathon that we held, we were able to co-host it with an organization called Map Uganda, as well as our Africa Hub partners and some students who are former interns of ours out of USC, the University of Southern California. So we all provided the training. We worked with our Map Uganda team to break out into different groups based on level. And in less than an hour, we were able to map over 3,000 buildings. That's incredible. <laughs> it was a great opportunity. We had over 120, almost 130 folks join us for the beginning of our mapathon, where we explained kind of the importance of why we were mapping this area around Lake Victoria that is often flooding nowadays, and why um, partners such as the Ugandan Red Cross and the International Organization for Migration are interested in using this sort of data. And then we had at least 80 folks stick around with us to continue to do the mapping, including a number of Ugandan partners from their Youth Mappers chapters, which are academic chapters. There's over 300 of them around the world where students can come together in local groups with a local sponsor and map for development and other humanitarian tasks. So you also mentioned you were going to have one in Asia coming up. Do you know yet where that will be? No, we haven't decided yet. Our Asia partner is the Kathmandu Living Labs. It's an NGO based out of Kathmandu, and they have partners across the region, um, both north and south of them. So we will be working with them here over the next couple of months to identify a location where this sort of remote mapping can be of use to the community. Well, we're excited to learn about where that's going to be. So we'll definitely be on the lookout for that. So all of this data is is open. Is that correct? And available? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. So where do you see, how do you see the future of open data evolving? Sure. Uh, so as I've mentioned, our office is a strong proponent of open data. There, this sort of data allows a community to map and to pick their own reality and can be a very strong evidence for requests for requirements that they have within their own community and for understanding the interactions within this community. Uh, one of the partners I got to visit uh, in our field trip out to Accra, Ghana, we got to work with our OSM Ghana partners in this organization, and they hosted myself and our 2C Africa partners so that we could see a community where they had been mapping. This was an informal settlement, and it had very limited road access into the community. They were able to take the map that they had created of their own community and this limited access, combine this with data as to where the nearest hospital was and what the traffic looked like on the roads around them and the the travel times. And they were able to show that they were over a half an hour to their nearest hospital Whereas if they were able to put a bridge over a um, creek that was just on the backside of their community, they would be mere minutes to this hospital. So something like this is a tremendous reason when value of open data and of being able to create this sort of map and visualization so that policymakers and local decision makers can understand where the requirements really are to make the biggest difference in a community's day-to-day where these things can take place. The other aspect of open data is that you never know beyond the original user, the original intention, what this data could be used for. So one of our um, partners had a field-based activity there in Kathmandu that was looking at mapping roads and buildings. This data was of tremendous value when they had an earthquake back in 2015, as well as the capacity that this organization had to try and understand where the requirements were. However, not just for emergency planning, which is what the original intention was for this data, they were able, after the earthquake, to come together and hold a hackathon 
one of the groups at this hackathon took this data set and they saw it through a problem, through the eyes of this problem that they had, where they needed to be able to use the taxi service. However, the cost could vary widely. They created an app where not only the taxi drivers had a better way of navigating around, but then the people that were using the taxi had the opportunity to better understand and predict what the cost would be for going from point A to point B. So that's one example. Another one that came up just recently here with COVID was in Cusco, Peru, where we had our secondary cities project from 2015 to 2016. Part of this was mapping the informal settlements as well as the green space and the open space around them. During COVID, at the beginning of the pandemic, as everything closed down, there were supply chain issues as well as issues where people were, didn't have employment and they weren't able to afford the food that they needed. So one of the local community organizations took this data we had created years earlier identified where these open areas were, that they could start to create community gardens and help feed the population within their community. So open data has such a tremendous value and there's just countless ways. The one thing about open data, however, and something we've worked on is the standardization and getting really robust metadata for this um, data set that's out there. Because you can't figure out how to use it for one of these additional purposes if you don't understand what some of the limitations are on this data, perhaps something that occurred when the data was created and it's not a complete data set, or you know, we didn't consider this aspect so we don't have additional metadata or attributions in there that would really help for this other purpose that someone might be considering. So as our geographer often says, we work very hard to include data or to create data that is useful, usable, and used. So this includes the context, such as human geography data, that makes it useful. This includes the completeness and robustness of the metadata that makes it usable, and then the interoperability, the accessibility, and the discoverability that allows it to be used. That is a phenomenal answer. And as you know, Laura, 10 years ago when the Worldwide Human Geography Data Working Group was started, it was started based on um, wanting to be data prepared for disaster preparedness. Yes. And and so just to to hear these use cases and examples, it's 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 just been tremendously enlightening to hear what's going on, you know, across the world and and to hear you say you wanted to make a difference through geography. It's exciting to hear that you really are at the forefront of these you know, these actions. It's been a tremendous experience and only possible because of all of our partnerships that we've had. We've, of course, had these local partners where we work together with academics, local NGOs, as well as the local government, municipal government, or other members. But also, we have this partnership with the American Association of Geographers to conduct this and make it all happen. We also have partnerships with the NSF Spatial Temporal Consortium and the Harvard Geospatial what is it? Center for Geospatial Approaches. So these, this is the only way that you can talk to an international program like this around geography is bringing together all of these experts in so many different aspects of the field. So Laura, I know you talked about data on hiu.state.gov. You talked about mapgive.state.gov. If you want to sign up to be a remote mapper and learn more about that. Is there any other open data that's out there? Um, maybe the Secondary Cities Program has developed or maybe C2M2. Where can listeners get access to that? Absolutely. So our Secondary Cities data 
we started out with a GeoNode, which is an open source mapping platform. Um, I've had a wide experience of managing mapping platforms for open data. We've actually made the transition recently to um, our AGOL site. The data is still open, still accessible, and downloaded. All of the rich metadata is there. So our secondary cities, AGOL, will be where you can find data from any of these 16 cities where we had our 2C project. Um, we also work with our partners for our C2M2 project, where we weren't as focused on the data specifically, but we were looking at taking it to that next step, where we're doing the analysis and the visualization and dissemination to our project partner or to all of our key stakeholders in these communities. We encourage them to use open data portals that were most applicable for the audiences and most discoverable for the audiences that they were looking at. So a number of our project partners used OpenStreetMap to include not just kind of the basic data about the roads and buildings, but you can add a lot of human geography attribution into OpenStreetMap. And then other partners used the Humanitarian Data Exchange, HDX, which is created by the UN's OCHA. Um, so this is something that is very widely discoverable across the humanitarian community and accessible for all. It's also very interesting in different ways in which the data is managed and update, updated. As we get into this a little more deeply, we see how an organization such as OCHA and HDX require that the data be managed and updated, or at least verified, every three months to six months. So it's very important, we find, with open data that if you want to use it for another purpose, you consider how old it is or how updated it might be. So we've got a lot of lessons learned here with open data and sharing more broadly with our partners and their communities as well. This is sometimes our secondary cities geonode was sometimes the only opportunity for local communities to make some of the locally held data more accessible as opposed to sitting on someone's hard drive. So it was some it was a great opportunity to start all these discussions back when we would initiate a program in one of our secondary cities to really understand and discover the data that's out there. And then we had the challenges, of course, to look at data that had already been created and consider how it could fit within this more broad, more um, shareable metadata schema that we had created. And trying to make this data interoperable was another aspect that we found very tricky. We considered that our project was platform agnostic. So we wanted a program or project team to create a process based on either open source data or prep platforms or proprietary platforms, whatever would be most sustainable for them beyond the end of the two to three years that we worked with them. But that meant that we had to figure out how to get the data across all these different platforms. And so I think that going forward with open data and open data access into the future, this interoperability aspect is really going to be the challenge that we all find ourselves in because there are so many ways now in which organizations can create data or teams or individuals even can create open data and can share it and make it visible. But really having that complete metadata and then putting it in, out in such a format that it can be used in the wide variety of platforms that folks use for GIS as well as visualization is where we find ourselves kind of at that crossroads or at that challenge right now. So many exciting success stories, so many impactful success stories that you and your team and your partners have made and so many lessons learned. I'm really glad that you were here today to tell us all about that. 
So the geographer of the United States recommended we talk to Laura Klein. And boy, am I glad that we did. <laughs> this has been a great conversation and we appreciate you joining us today, Laura. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity as a female geographer to share our, my expertise and experience and hopefully encourage other female geographers to join the discussion because I think sometimes in geosciences, I may be one of the very few females in the room and sometimes it's nice to encourage others to come forward and speak up um, and join the discussion. So it's great to join both of you ladies today. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you all listeners for joining us today. This is a great discussion. Please join us again next week for another conversation on human geography and human security on Through the Human Geography Lens. If you're interested in learning more about human geography and the WWHGD, check us out at www.hgd.org, where you can find more than 5,000 cataloged human geography data sets and access presentations and recordings for more than 50 data-driven events. I'm Gwyneth Holt. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you again next time.